University's talk show, Taking Old School Viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to myself? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Today, we have our neighbor, Eric Peterson from Quadra Island, joining us to share more about the amazing story of citizen science becoming much bigger with the creation of the Tula Foundation and its many offshoots, including the Hakai Institute. Where are you listening from today, neighbor? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, and the air where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Klahus, the Klaaman, and Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. Welcome to Folky Radio, Eric. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Eric, can you hear me? Uh-oh, we might have a little bit of uh, a, uh, a little glitch in the system. Eric, can you hear me? Okay, well, let me uh, do that thing where I put some music on so that you don't have to listen to me try to connect the phone, and we'll see if we can get Eric back on the phone uh, to join us. So give me a minute. He's a dancer.
Hello? Eric, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Um, okay, we are on air. Uh, Eric, do we have you? Yes, I hope so. Oh, my goodness. Well, that was just a really... Uh, you were very patient. Um, that was the first time I've had whatever that experience just was. So so thank you. Thank you, neighbors, for for also being patient. <laughs> uh, maybe it's time. This is a wonderful time for me to put out a pitch for, uh, for CKTZ, uh, Cortez Community Radio, because I think we need a new phone. Um, uh, it, this phone that we have here is got to be at least 50 years old, um, and that's fine. It's always served us really well, but maybe now it's time for a new one. So, uh, <laughs> Eric, thank you so much um, uh, for for staying patiently with us through that whatever just happened, that vortex of technology. Um, not, a prob- not a problem. As I was going to say, normally I'd be sitting in my house looking out across the water at Whaletown and Cortez, but today I'm calling from Vancouver. You know, I just think us Islanders, we have some sort of maybe allergy to to the Vancouverites, so maybe that's what (laughs) happened, you know? I'm sure if you were actually on Quadra, it would never have gone wrong. (laughs) Well, so, um, uh, you may have missed my little intro, but we are excited to talk to you today, Eric, um, and to learn a little bit more about you, about the Tula Foundation, and um, and a little bit more about how guy. Uh, I have to say when um, I told people that I was going to have you on today and and we're going to talk about Hakai, so many people that I know here were like, oh, I'm so excited to finally learn more um, about what I think a lot of people have a big place in their heart for, for Hakai here. Um, and we would all just like to learn more. So let's start with a little bit about you and the Tula Foundation and um, and how you guys got here. Yeah, I guess I, part of the thing is I don't want to raise expectations. We've got more than uh, 100 people, probably about 130 people working for Tula and Hakai, and almost all of them know more about the detailed science that I do. So I'm more of, um, I took, together with my wife, Christina Monk, we're more kind of the engineers, the, the organizers, the cheerleaders, kind of the entrepreneur for all of it. I'm kind of, I'm kind of an all-around fanboy. So I am very enthusiastic about all the stories, but I'm as much a consumer of the science and stories as I am a producer, so that uh, I can give kind of a, an overview of things, but if anyone really wants to get into the details of the science, uh, uh, there's a tremendous amount of material to follow up on, and I hope we can maybe have some follow-up interviews where we can kind of dig deeper into the science. So don't feel that you're talking to a scientific expert when you're talking to me. You're talking about somebody who's an organizer who's very enthusiastic about all of the work that everybody does who works with the, with the Hakai Institute. Uh, well, we I, I, I love myself a generalist, so you're okay. <laughs> you're at the right place here with Folk University. So tell us a little bit about, about the background. And I think Tula Foundation was really a, a newer concept um, uh, to me and might also be a newer um, name to those listening. So can you tell us a little bit about who the Tula Foundation is and that relationship then with these other programs and projects that you're doing? Well, I guess uh, I give you, I could probably start way back and give a long story, uh, but I'll try to do it really kind of quickly. 
Uh, I am very much a, um, I'm very much a British Columbian. Uh, the Tula Foundation is very much a, a British Columbia emphasis. So I am, like, I don't know, fifth-generation British Columbian. My great-grandparents came to Vancouver in the 1880s. I was born in Port Alberni. I grew up on Vancouver Island. I've worked all, worked all across the coast, went to UBC, and then for about 25 years, uh, I uh, moved to, uh, to England, met my future wife, been all over the place, uh, was, unbelievable, was very surprisingly rather successful in business, which I won't go through the details of that. It was an interesting business that we did in Waterloo, Ontario. And then finally, in about 2001, uh, I was sort of retired and uh, out, of, uh, out, of the, out of business activity and deciding what are we going to do with the rest of our lives. And so what we started, we decided what we wanted to do was to start an organization, uh, my wife and I, Christina, uh, that would uh, do uh, projects that we thought were socially useful, that we could do well, that were interesting, that were an area of interest for us. So around about you know, 2001, 2002, we started the Tula Foundation. So the Tula Foundation is a family foundation based in British Columbia, not particularly mysterious, uh, organized by myself, my wife, and my sister. And uh, we look, look for useful things to do. Our motto is uh, innovation and solutions in the public interest. So we're always looking to do things in the public interest, but we're looking for things that are innovative, that are solution-oriented, and, and, are, and are interesting. So we started a, a suite of projects starting around about the year 2000, and uh, we now we've got what we call five divisions within the Tula Foundation. And a few of them I can just briefly mention because they don't really apply here. We've got a health and, uh, health and public and nursing project which, which, go, which is ongoing in Guatemala, which we've done for 20 years. We have media projects, which um, many, uh, some of you may know, the Hakai Magazine and other kind of media activities. We're involved in, um, in collaboration and meetings and kind of bringing organizations together. But then the biggest piece that we have is the Hakai Institute, which is what we call our motto in the Hakai Institute is uh, science on the coastal margin. So it's uh, ocean science and ecological science uh, that takes place on the British Columbia coast. We started that in earnest around about 2010, and uh, through that there's been a number of, um, and I'm going to stop talking in a second because uh, I go on about this. So in 2010 we started the Hakai Institute. We started it initially on the central coast of British Columbia on Calvert Island, which is halfway to Alaska. And since over the last five years or so, last five or six years, we very much expanded on Quadra and into the, uh, um, in, into the Salish Sea as well. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a, uh, you know, 90 mile an hour background on how we got from where we started to where we are now. So I'll let Manda break in and ask her next <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I feel like we're... Um We've landed on our own shores right here with the Hakai Institute and some of the work that's uh, been happening there. Um, so tell us a little bit about um, the Hakai Institute and the work that you've been doing that first started at Calvert Island um, and that is now uh, happening also on Quadra. Like what, what, is, what is the Hakai Institute? What is it doing? 
Well, I guess the the the, the main thing that uh, again, as as we're interested in science, but we're not you know specifically scientists. Christine and I both of us have scientific training. So in 2010, or maybe a little bit earlier than that, we looked at the coast of British Columbia and we said, what an amazing place, what an amazing place to do science. And at that time, there seemed as though there was very little science that was, that was taking place, particularly on a remote coast. So we sort of looked at that and we, we saw there were a lot of interest in people at the universities and scientists around who were interested in doing work, but they lacked a base, they lacked an infrastructure, they lacked organization, they lacked... Uh, uh, kind of an ordered way of doing things. So really kind of the first, our first idea was if we set up a scientific center, a venue on Calvert Island in this amazingly interesting place, it's a little bit like the, uh, about the idea, you know, if we build it, they will come. If we set up the facilities, if we set up the capability, then we'll be able to attract scientific projects. Uh, the most thing we're interested in what's called long-term ecological research. And that is the philosophy that says if you really want to understand what's going on ecologically in an environment, you need to study places in great detail. You need to study them comprehensively, long-term, year-round, for many, many years to really come to an understanding of how a place works. And so uh, that's the sense of setting up what we call ecological observatories, places where we can study the environment you know, in, a, in an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary way across a whole range of science, study it comprehensively. So one of our ecological observatories then is on Calvert Island. Our second ecological observatory is on Quadra. So that's that big idea is take the, take the time and patience to study something comprehensively. And there's so much of science which is fragmented. It's short-term. It's concentrated in specific areas, uh, you know, of just a couple of years duration. If you really want to understand what's going on, particularly in areas like climate change, biodiversity, you need to really commit to the long term. So we have really, that's really our principle. We commit to the long term we, we, and we gather a group of, of multidisciplinary experts to study our environment in, in, in great detail. The particular topics and particular areas I can touch on if, if, if Nanda wants me to. I I. Do want you to? I I have to take a second though that to really spend a moment saying how much I resonate with this idea of the long term um, uh, ecological research, and uh, I think it fits nicely with something that Folk University is really committed to, which is this idea of slow learning. But also something that I think probably attracts people like you know, islanders to these places, right, is that this deep wisdom um, that is, you know, uh, like to even call it, uh, you know, this deep knowing of people who have lived here um, for long lives or even for generations and have been careful uh, observers of the environment around them, right? And what you can learn about how things have changed and how they have not changed and um, by just listening to these careful observers. So I really love and appreciate that that you helped bring some of the tools to make this more possible um, and to bridge these worlds. So so thank you for that vision um, and doing that. And yeah, so, you know yeah, go on. I, I, I'd say, too, I mean, it isn't that we are outliers among scientists. You know, if I talk to ecologists, they say, yes, we absolutely believe in that. And so that is the, you know, within, the, within, within people who really think deeply about science, they agree with that. 
The hard thing is getting funding to do that mm -hmm. kind of thing. I mean, everything is oriented towards short-term, quick results, rather than just taking the patients to understand. So that's a strong tradition, and we have strong support within the, the scientific communities, the academic communities, within the government, within government agencies, uh, that they, the individual scientists believe in this. The other thing, of course, which I think you're alluding to, absolutely true. This is very consistent with an indigenous perspective on uh, on how you understand the environment and the patience that it takes to learn. So when we say we, we really try to be integrative and multidisciplinary, that means integrating above the across the natural sciences, integrating into the social sciences, and integrating into uh, you know traditional and indigenous knowledge. Which of course there, that's where there's a tremendous amount of deep learning that uh, there's there's knowledge and expertise that comes from you know, far earlier than we have the established scientific records to do things. So actually there is a strong consensus around this and we are, we are, very, we are very much uh, acclaimed and thanked by uh, people right across the scientific spectrum for having this long-term philosophy. Well, I, I, that warms my heart. Um, so tell us a little bit about some of these, um, some of the areas that you're looking at uh, and some of the projects and maybe some of the, the headline grabbing moments um, uh, that have been possible because of this sort of longer term looking and research. Well, I would say, um, let me just think so. And we have, um, easiest way to look at it is we kind of declare that we have eight areas of scientific interest. Uh, and uh, now I'm kind of struggling to remember what those are on the, on, on, at, the, at, the, at the moment here. But certainly the ocean. We're very, you know, on, on fundamental ocean characteristics. So let's face it, the temperature, oxygen content, all of the things that are happening in, in, in the ocean, that includes uh, right out to the, to the coastal shelf, through the inlet. So studying the ocean, obviously important. One particular area of studying those kind of physics and chemistry of the ocean that we're particularly interested in is ocean acidification. And probably I'm sure that many of your listeners are aware of the fact, obviously we've got CO2, which is building up in the atmosphere, and what that means is carbonate chemistry of the ocean is changing, the ocean is becoming more acidic, and that's having an effect on life in the ocean. So that is an important uh, additional area there. Uh, we are very much interested in biodiversity, so uh, and in not not just in in salmon and whales. We're very interested in invertebrates. We're interested in plankton. We're interested in all the fundamentals of the ocean. So we we use a lot of techniques, including genomics, looking at environmental DNA to do really kind of an inventory of life in the ocean. That's particularly important. And the locations that we study, particularly Calvert Island are areas where there's an incredible amount of existing biodiversity, so that uh, they're some of the most rich and varied areas on, on anywhere on the coast. And so they're, they're, uh, they're wonderful reference sites to really get an idea of what the diversity of life is in a relatively healthy ocean. We also say that we study science on the coastal margins. So that doesn't mean that, that means it's coastal science, not just ocean science. So we have an extensive set of programs looking at watersheds, looking at fjords. In our area, we have studies of Toba Inlet, Butte Inlet, Knights Inlet. And so those deep, uh, those deep inlets that are so, you know, everyone knows who lives in this area, absolutely fascinating places with amazing ecology. So those are important areas. We also, we've got a motto, which is ice fields to oceans. We say, 
you know, the, uh, the, um, the ocean starts right up there at the glaciers. So we're very concerned and interested in the fate of our coastal glaciers, which are retreating and disappearing at an, at an amazing rate. So that's an important area of study for us. We're very interested and aware of a lot of instability that's on our coastline. So geohazards on our coastline are something that we've really started studying uh, recently. Uh, many of your listeners may be aware of the uh, big landslide that happened up at the end of Butte Inlet on the Southgate River at Elliott Creek right around Christmas time, which created havoc all the way down. And I'm sure people around Cortez Island uh, have, are, have suffered the consequences of, of that great slide. So that's very, very important to us. We're very interested in salmon. We're very interested in shellfish. And one, and, and, uh, one, and one area that is uh, a strange area that we never really thought that we were going to get involved in, which is a source of great information, is, is archaeology and the deep history of the coast. So we kind of happened into that accidentally as an area of interest. If you like, if there's ever an area of ours that is really has been headline-grabbing, and really kind of an opportunity to kind of entice people to be interested in what we're doing and learn about all of these other scientific areas, you know, through the lens of, of human beings' habitation of our coast and the whole history of that, that's that. So I think I've touched on most of them, Amanda. Of, of, of all of those areas are our areas of active interest, including doing research also in the laboratory in addition to research in the field. So we've got extensive laboratory facilities on Quadra Island as well. And um, it feels like so, so vast. I, I was sort of plotting in my head how we could do a whole series of courses to go deeper into each um, of these things. And so a little bit, I feel like I'm struggling to even know where do we begin, but maybe we could begin just with the kind of very, um, you know, some very big moments uh, that were made possible through this, like, you know, things that, um, that, you know, you mentioned like the landslides, things that people have heard about or made headlines or um, that you were particularly excited to uh, write about in the Hawkeye magazine. Yeah, I mean, the Hawkeye magazine is, is a separate, uh, separate entity. They, uh, they create the stories and they tell them and I, I hear about them when they come out. So I'm not the one who creates those stories, but I take your point. In each of those areas, I would say there's been something that's been headline-grabbing. Some of them have been good for good reasons, some of them for bad reasons. Clearly studying the ocean, I think that most people are aware of what we call the marine heat wave that hit, that hit our coast in or the blob or whatever we want to call it. The, the ocean suddenly around 2014, 2015, 2016 being far, warm, far warmer than it would otherwise be. So it's just, again, a little bit like the heat dome that happened on land. We've got heat waves that happen in the ocean. That was, a, that was an incredibly uh, headline-grabbing thing that had tremendous consequences. Also, too, uh, last summer, the heat dome, the way that it fried all of the inter- an awful lot of the intertidal life, I mean, that was a huge, that was huge headline-grabbing. Uh, that was the kind of thing you're studying things long-term, but you need to be aware of in the midst of studying long-term, there are these short-term events which are happening now that are incredibly important. Uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the landslide, we've covered that. One thing I, I, I was saying to, um, talking about beforehand with Manda with respect to archaeology and the, and the deep history of the coast, that has been amazing. And as we say, I we often say jokingly, it's the uh, gateway drug to science in the sense that people who don't think that they're going to be interested in science, well, they're interested in archaeology and these human stories, and they find 
inadvertently they start getting interested in science in order to follow that up. So that, you know, we had a, a number of really kind of pushing back uh, the, uh, the time frame for when we would have had active uh, um, large-scale occupation on the coast of British Columbia, you know, from 11,000 years ago to 13,000 years ago to 14,000 years ago to, you know, the possibilities that it's even far farther back in time. And, of course, there was one huge um, headline event that we had, uh, which was the discovery of human footprints that appear to have been 13,500 years, something like that. Don't quote me exactly on the date that were discovered in excavations on Calvert Island. And uh, that was uh, very, very exciting. Uh, was, you know, in uh, The Guardian, and newspapers all around the world, and, and, and everything else. Again, very, very exciting, and kind of put British Columbia archaeology really on the map. And it stayed on the map, and so there's a, been a tremendous number of interesting follow-up stories on that, including one very recently that we wrote up in the Hakai Magazine, if people are interested in looking at it. Is the one that you're referring to the the recent one about uh, questioning whether perhaps um, parts of northern Vancouver Island weren't uh, included in the Ice Age? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's quite amazing. And there are these places where once you start looking in detail, I mean, uh, maybe you know, ten or twenty years ago, uh, the sense was that the coast of British Columbia was all. Uh, occupied by ice, and uh, nobody could have uh, nobody could have gone anywhere on our coast, you know, up to you know maybe 11,000 years ago or something like that. And the, the migration of, of people supposedly from Siberia into North America, you know, must have happened, you know, between the ice sheets because it couldn't have come down the coast. It's now clear that a tremendous amount of our coastline was ice-free. A lot of that has been our work, and there's been a tremendous amount of, of, of other scientists who've been working on that. Again, pushing back and kind of realistically saying there are large areas of our coastline that would have been ice-free very early. And very, very interesting work done by Chris Hebda and a number of other colleagues, um, uh, people working for the Hakai Institute and then also people working at some of the universities, looking at the north end of Vancouver Island. And again, I don't know if people know it's around... Uh, Top Knot Lake, um, San Joseph Bay, up that, up that on that northwest corner of the island. It really looks as though, from what they can determine, that that would have been an area that, if you like, was open for business an awful lot earlier than other places on the coast. And I think that Chris's uh, results show that it was at least 18,500 years ago that this would have been uh, territory that was, it was, you know, it wouldn't have been like it is today, but it would have been the place where bears could have lived, human beings could have lived. It was, it was uh, certainly out from under the ice. And that's, uh, that's not the, the baseline uh, as far as Chris, Chris's paper shows. It's at least 18,500 years ago, leaving open the possibility that it could have been longer and that this might have been conceivably been what's called uh, refugia which is an area that uh, on our coast that may not have ever been glaciated where there could have been pockets of, of life that it would, could have continued 20,000 years ago, 25,000 years ago. We really, I think the whole field feels at this point, all bets are off. Uh, the sense that, uh, you know, it, it, the, the, the coast was a lot more habitable, a lot more accessible for human habitation than people would have thought uh, 10 years ago. 
So when when you is this what you mean when you talk about deep history? Is is this deep history? This the, what we're looking at? You know, fifteen twenty thousand years ago. Yeah, I would say that was what we would call deep time, and you know, deep time is certainly back beyond any kind of formal you know scientific records. And in some of these cases, I mean, it is you know hundreds of generations. It's uh, it's difficult for oral history to to survive that time. So it, it, it's again a history that we're, what we're dependent upon, uh, and some of it is literally deep. Uh, you know that the history of those at those times is often buried in sediments. For example, in Chris Hebda's study that I talked about, what they've done is they've gone and they've taken deep cores of the sediments in Topknot Lake. And so, obviously, the older the older the sediment, you know, the sediments come into the lake. So, the deep history is deep in the sediments. So, as they dig down deep into the earth, they're going backward in time. So, you know, to that some that sort of you know it's sort of deep philosophically, but it's also deep in terms of being 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 buried in the earth, being buried in shell middens. Uh, you know, it, it's something that you actually have to dig, and the deeper you go, the farther back you're going in time. So that would be what I what I would sort of understand by deep history. Um, and I I like this idea, and I'm wondering if you'd talk about it a little bit more about you know where where. Uh, you know, I, th- I you think you refer to archaeology as the gateway drug um, uh, to the other sciences, which I uh, really like. Um, and also, we've done a lot of archaeology because we're super lucky to have um, uh, a neighbor, Dr. Brian Hayden, who's an incredible archaeologist that lives here and has shared quite often on on. Um, on this uh, Folky Radio. And I just have to let you know that he's in complete agreement. So we have our, our professorial staff um, definitely believes um, and has quite a bit of res- research to suggest that this is where the early people have uh, came th- you know, down through the, the sure. Bering Strait or you know, however that works because I'm not the uh, expert here. So um, I like that. But I also like this idea of... of of using science and modern science, current science, and the way that it um, kind of moves up against or, you know, comes up against history and reveals stuff that maybe reveals information about ourselves that maybe we didn't even set out to discover, but but is just revealing all these bits and clues and pieces um, because of taking the slower approach to the science. Um, yeah, I mean- yeah. To give you to give you an idea about you know it, it, am I saying gateway drug that's kind of frivolous but you know uh, if you want you know if somebody might say well you know are you interested in the bones of old things and somebody might say no I'm not really interested in that and but you may say well are you interested to know well, you know what kind of bears were living on the north end of uh, Vancouver Island fifteen thousand years ago and you know did we have Arctic foxes there well. You know, you can find that out, but you got to learn. You got to know quite a bit of science to do that, because you got to be able to identify the parts of the uh, parts of an animals to be able to tell what's part of this, part of that. So, a whole bunch of anatomy you need to know to understand history. The other thing that's really interesting, of course, is that you, we, everybody knows about eDNA. You know, they watch CSI, and you know everything that's anywhere leaves a trace of DNA where it goes today in a, at a crime scene. Well, historically, every animal that lives, lives at least, you know, even if they lived 10,000 years ago, under the right circumstances, some of their DNA is still there. So that if we've got sufficiently uh, capable techniques, we can dig back through that, um, you know, those sediments 
and we can determine what was living at that time by finding the residual DNA from that time. So when I say gateway drug to science, then all of a sudden somebody might say, I'm not the least bit interested in genomics or anything else. But yes, well, if you're going to figure that out, you're going to have to learn something about eDNA. You're going to learn about a certain amount about biochemistry and everything else. That's a great interest. Another area that has been really, really interesting on our coast is you cannot understand archaeology on our coast without understanding what's called geomorphology. And that is what was the, how was the land, where were the shorelines in those ancient times? How has the land moved up and down? How is it related to other things that are happening? So you need to understand a huge amount of geology to figure out what the heck is going on and to figure out where those coastlines are and where those settlements would have been to figure out, to piece everything together. So it turns out there's something called, I'm going to give you a little bit of science here, there's something that's called isostatic rebound. And so what that means is when the ice is sitting on the land, the land seems pretty solid, but it's actual, actually quite flexible, so that when you have a couple of kilometers of ice sitting on land, it pushes the land down, so that when that ice melts, the land, if you like, rebounds, and it rebounds really slowly, so that as the ice is disappearing, the land is rising, and so the shoreline, of course, you've got to figure out where the ocean is, and then you've got to figure out where the land is, piece it all together. Why is that of interest? is because all of these ancient, it's just like today, where do you find settlements around the ocean? You find them close to the shoreline. So identifying where that shoreline is is critically important to understand where you should be looking for, for archaeology. So if you, want to be, if you want to understand, you know, the deep history of this place, which is maybe sort of a story, well, you've got to understand the archaeology, but you've got to understand the geology. You've got to understand the geophysics of it. There's a tremendous amount of science that you need to bring to, to bear to tell that story. Uh, and we've got really two really interesting areas on our coastline. Uh, on Calvert Island is amazing. The, the land rebounded at almost exactly the same rate that the ocean was rising. So you can almost feel like Calvert Island floated on, on you know, because the, the sea level has risen uh, uh, hundreds of meters in the last 15,000 years. But during that time, Calvert Island rose by rebound just about exactly the same amount so it almost rose like a boat sitting on the water so the shorelines at calvert island today are exactly almost exactly the same shorelines as 15,000 years ago very interesting story however if you look around quadra and i suspect the same thing is around cortez that land respond, re, uh, rebounded so quickly that it rebounded upwards faster than the ocean was rising. So the 15,000-year-old shorelines on Quadra, you don't find them around Cape Mudge, you don't find them around Cape uh, around Harriet Bay. You find the 15,000-year-old the shorelines halfway up, I don't know if people know Quadra Island, but halfway up Chinese Mountain, halfway up Mount Seymour. High up there, you find these old shorelines. So if you're looking for ancient, sh ancient uh, shorelines around Quadra, you're wasting your time looking on the beaches today you're looking way, way, yeah, and so that understanding exactly how that thing is happening has been amazing. So we've got an amazing archaeological and geological story that was, it was told on, on Quadra, finishing about three or four years ago. And uh, so that was an amazing story. We're now turning our attention to the north end of Vancouver Island, as I said. All of this interesting, very interesting it, stuff. It's, it's so interesting, and even... Um, I mean, I think this starts to reveal the complexity of something like the Tula Foundation, too, because the the 
layers of disciplines, the the number of people and the backgrounds that you would have to have to begin to uh, even just ask that simple question. It seems like such a simple question. You know, what was the ancient shoreline um, like here, and where you know where are those places now? Um, and and what a not simple. Um, process to get to that answer. And so if people want to know, like I want to know now what Cortez um, would have been like and where the shorelines would have been 15,000 years ago. Um, is that information that people can f- get access to? Or is this the kind of thing we have to kind of glean um, some ideas about based on what you've, you know, what the Hackai Institute and others have been researching? I think that there's probably some extrapolations that can be made, but I don't know that we've looked at that detail on on on, uh, on Cortez. The other thing that I didn't even mention is, is the other thing we do is fly. Uh, we've got a capability of an aircraft and instruments on it to fly what's called lidar, and lidar is is you know you fly over in an aircraft and you and and you've got a laser scanner on the aircraft and you create a very very exquisite detailed three-dimensional map of the surface of the earth underneath you. So together with that, plus an idea of shoreline history, and you put those two things together, and it, it gives you a very good prediction about where you should be looking for, uh, for archaeological sites. So uh, those, those things, uh, those things go, uh, go, uh, go very well together. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think that, as I say, I'm, I'm the fanboy here. I'm uh, I'm just interested in archaeology. I'm not the one who creates all that. I'm sure that uh, if people are interested, if they get in touch with Chris Hebda, Duncan McLaren, Daryl Fedgey, uh, all of the people that we work with, um, they'll be able to uh, bring them totally up to speed on, on what's happening around Cortez and, and the other islands in the area. Well, maybe we'll just have to bring them on to folk you. It's <laughs> amazing, though. Sometimes uh, the, the way the land responds is very local. You find that places that are even, you know, 10 kilometers apart have, have uh, reacted very differently uh, to the, uh, you know, have rebounded at very different rates. And that's going to depend upon how, how the relative amount the ice was loaded in areas and also the mechanical characteristics of the Earth's surface. You know, some parts of the Earth's surface are more flexible uh, than, than others, and so they bounce back more so. It's an amazing, amazing story. I had absolutely no idea that uh, any of this was going to turn out to be on our on our plate. And it's uh, and as you say, the fact that you've got a multidisciplinary team means that you can just bring people together. Let me give you another example of something. It's a really interesting story. And here's a headline that hasn't really come out yet. On Calvert Island, I think what it was two years ago, uh, we had a juvenile humpback whale die. Uh, come up on our beach, and with just a fresh kill, uh, looked like it had been, a, it's prob- almost all, certainly been a ship strike. So it was about a one-year-old humpback whale came and, and died on our beach. We've since, going, going through, we did a full necropsy on it. We've uh, dissected all the bones. Uh, there's a whole process taking place, and eventually we're going to have that reconstructed skeleton uh, hung in our lodge on Calvert Island. So the number of different disciplines that need to go together for a project like that are amazing. And I just heard today something that was really interesting. So that you know, they, um, the people who work on the whale said, well, there were barnacles and and all sorts of other invertebrates that were stuck on the whale. They were really interested to know: does is there anybody at Hakai? who knows, uh, you know, uh, anything about, you know, barnacles and things like that on whales, because that may tell you where that 
where that humpback is being, all the, all the, it's almost a, the, the whale is like an ecosystem in terms of all the things that are growing on it. And so um, somebody, they just kind of asked me, and I said, oh, I know who we can talk to. We'll talk to Alyssa Gaiman. She works for Hackeye, and she, uh, she's an expert in invertebrates. Within two hours, they've got a project going, and uh, Alyssa is going to be looking and analyzing all those things. So just, you know, when having all of those, as you say, uh, Amanda, the people who've got all of those different skills are kind of all on call. They're all working together, all working collaboratively. But all of these cross-linking things uh, turn out to be uh, incredibly interesting parts of the story that you wouldn't otherwise think that, you know, you think a dead whale on the beach, is somebody going to think, wow, that's really an interesting problem in invertebrate zoology. We can uh, analyze all the things that are growing on it. But, of course, that is, that, that is tremendously interesting. One thing I, was gonna, I mentioned to Amanda that will be for particularly of interest, I mentioned uh, DNA, uh, and, and I think some people may have heard of environmental DNA. That's what you find, uh, where you find uh, the DNA that's in the water and in the sediments that can tell you what lives there today. Uh, the other, and the other thing that I sort of alluded to was ancient DNA, which is going down into sediments and finding the DNA from organisms that were there uh, 10,000 years ago. You can probably tell that the, the amount of, of, of technique and, and care that you need, you need to, to have to look at that, that ancient DNA is, is, is very, very uh, specialized. So the work that we've done so far in the past and the work that's in Chris Hebda's paper on ancient DNA was done in collaboration with really kind of the top lab and one of the top labs in the world in Denmark. So the people from Denmark work with us. They use their techniques and their specialized laboratory in, in Copenhagen uh, to do the work. They advised us that we would do a lot better, and they thought we had the capability, if we developed the capability, to do it locally. So we're not sending our samples uh, around the world to, to get processed. So one of the big news, uh, news items on Quadra this year is we're right in the middle of, of, of constructing and commissioning our ancient DNA laboratory. Wow. So um, by the end of the summer, we'll be sort of putting it through its paces, doing it as test flights, and we think in the, in the coming years we're going to be able to, uh, uh, to really increase our ability to look in deep time at, at DNA by uh, you know, having all of the field capability to go out there and find out where to look. But when we get the samples, being able to process them in detail on our own in our own laboratory on Quadra, which is really quite exciting. So it'll be a world-class laboratory, you know, in 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 uh, a, a, what a lot of people would think is an unlikely place. So uh, that's very exciting for us. Oh, that it's really exciting. Um, and does this tie? Will will the the ancient DNA lab tie into some of the stuff that you're looking at right now on Vancouver Island? You mentioned a little bit um, about some of the kind of deep time stuff that you're beginning to look at there. Um, tell us a little bit more about the things that you, you know the the first questions you hope will be answered through your ancient DNA lab. Well, I would say that you know uh, what what, the, what we've seen so far. Uh, and as I've mentioned, is, you know, Chris Hebda's stuff, they, they do some initial cores in Top Knot Lake, and they say, well, you know, I mean, this has been ice-free for at least 18,000 years. And what they did is they, they ran out of capability to, to take their cores deeper, so that, you know, subsequently we should be taking those deeper cores, and we should be saying, well, you know, maybe we're going to, uh, the next result is going to say, you know, 21,000 years ago. Now, I'm just speculating. Don't quote me on that. But, you know, there is an opportunity to look back deeper in time on the north end of Vancouver Island. 
There's an opportunity to look in different locations where we're going to get a richer picture of what's happening. And so far, I've been talking just about what, what we would call paleoecology, and that are the plants and animals that existed at that time. At the same time, um, the groups are doing a tremendous amount of work looking at um, human settlements on the north end of the island. And there's a couple of areas that are particularly favorable for human settlements. Those would be around Quatsino Sound. Yeah, a lot of people would know that part of the, the island. That's um, just a natural, natural inlet area there, which would be fair, favorable to a habitation. And there's also an awful lot, it looks like an awful lot of interesting uh, settlement uh, uh, around the end of, of Nimkish Lake, Wass Lake, Wass in that area there. So I'm, I'm, for a lot of people listening here, of course, they've driven up and down the island. They know where Wass is. They know where Quatsino is. So those are very, very, uh, those are, are, if you like, world-class archaeological sites. We're just beginning to understand the, you know, the richness and the ancient nature of, of settlements that have, that have happened in those areas. So it's amazing how little these areas have been, have been studied. That's, again, I uh, would say also, too, it's uh, something that, um, you know, Duncan and Chris and everybody does in collaboration with the respective First Nations in the area. So they're very interested partners in this, very interested in um, in understanding the history of, of, of settlement in their area and, of course, are proud of, of the, uh, the amazing amount of settlements and the technology and the sophistication of, of, of a lot of these uh, of all of these settlements in the past. These were not hunters and gatherers. These are people who did engineered the landscape, had a lot of technology, and, and were worried, uh, living and working very effectively on the land for a long period of time. So very interesting stuff, and all of that stuff, I think, will come out. And uh, having the team working, and again, it's a little bit easier for us to work on the north end of Vancouver Island than it is up on these difficult locations on the central coast. So. Um, it's been uh, it's been uh, it's, it's an interesting opportunity. Very uh, so. Watch this space for future for for coming news. So you ain't seen nothing yet in terms of what's going to come out of the North Island. Oh my goodness! I, it feels so um, just like I mean, dreamy and magical on one hand that we can have these resources and tools here and really make a laboratory of one of the most interesting biodiverse places in the world. But also, on the other hand, it feels, um, but like, of course, like, isn't this exactly the kind of place where these tools should be? And part of me almost feels like, why, um, why did it take so long? Why did it take private funding? Um, and I don't know how much you can talk about that because you're the one actually doing it. But, um, but I'm like, you know, like, why aren't there more of these kinds of stations out here in these remote places where we actually have such incredible access to biodiversity? Search me. <laughs> that, was, that was what seemed ironic when Christina and I looked at the coast. So, I mean, there's a whole history of this. I mean, there are great research stations in the Caribbean. There are great research stations in Costa Rica. There are Arctic research stations. There's wonderful research stations in, well, there's Friday Harbor Laboratories in, uh, in, in Washington State, which people know about. Many, many of these areas. But I think almost, you know, British Columbia, we sell ourselves short. We've got, uh, it's, and, and, you know, I mean, it's sort of thought a lot of these areas are just places you go to cut down trees. And, uh, you know, the idea that there, these could really be biodiversity treasures, I think, took a long time to realize. I think, you know, with the Great Bear Rainforest, with the kind of focus on this, I think that in British Columbia, 
we've been slow to realize what we have and what an asset it is. And again, uh, we always think that, you know, a lot of people think, well, somebody else can obviously do better than we can. We can be world class at everything we want to do. And uh, the people are better, you know, so we've got great capability and we've got a wonderful opportunity for science here. You know, people from elsewhere in the world, they're, um, you know, they are, they don't need to be told that, you know, the uh, British Columbia coastline is an amazing place to do science. Uh, I think that, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, people in British Columbia, as they say, they don't understand the assets that they have. Now, it's not all private funding. We do our part. Uh, we work, you know, we work greatly well with, uh, you know, uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans. We work well with National Resource, Resources Canada. Uh, we work well with the universities, which, of course, get, get lots of funding. So it's a collaborative effort. We like to think that we are a little bit the catalyst in this, but we're not doing everything ourselves. Uh, well, that uh, that is reassuring. Um, okay, so I have <laughs> a, a particular question, which you might just know the answer to, but maybe you could also tell us, um, you know, what would be the kind of the way to study this question? Um, and we had a previous guest who's a naturalist uh, here on Cortez um, tell us that one of the uh, theories um, around the the ancient history of this area, um, the geology of this area, is that uh, Vancouver Island and this sort of, you know, and all the islands in between were not actually part of Pangaea, but were a separate um, landmass that uh, was formed and then came and kind of smashed up to Pangaea and then slid down off its side and um, and uh, and separated and made, you know, these crazy mountains and, and islands and everything that are around here. And I'm wondering whether or not, like, how does one begin to go about looking into um like you know this question like were we part of the same landmass are we different um and how does that change or uh influence the species that we find here well i mean that's of course something that happened millions of years ago rather than you know tens of thousands of years ago which we're talking about about now so that's that is you know that's deep history that's way back Yes, absolutely. I think that's, that's well established that, you know, British Columbia, uh, all the way up to the Rocky Mountains, is, is an amalgam of things that collided with the continent over time. And there are other pieces. That, so it's very complex. So, so something like Calvert Island, uh, it turns out that that's actually, with, uh, uh, you know, just a big lump of granite that, 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 you know, sort of formed in place and then rose up. Whereas Vancouver Island is totally different. And if you go off, say, the west coast of Haida Gwaii or something like that, you see a whole bunch of islands that just look like something you've swept up with a broom off the ocean. You know, a whole bunch of <laughs> detritus, uh, you know, different kinds of rocks and things like that that probably arose far, far apart. And, you know, its plate tectonics have swept them all across the ocean and made them collide. And so, yeah, that is a hugely interesting area. Uh, and, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to understand uh, lots of things like, I don't know if you know, things like the Burgess Shales, you can go up around in the mountains, up around fields, and you'll see stuff that used to be at the bottom of the ocean. And it's got, you know, pushed up and, and crunched up into, uh, into all of that complex landscape that's uh, British Columbia. So British Columbia, it's like the people in British Columbia. The land has come from all over the place, and it's all kind of collected together. And it's complicated, and it's tremendously interesting. So that's, you know, that's old, old geology. Very, very, very interesting stuff. 
I, I I love the idea of of uh, the people reflecting the land in that way. Um, I, I should also I, I mentioned a, a couple of things. I haven't talked, you know, we touched a little bit on citizen science, and I can see that we've got a, a tiny bit of time to go, but. You know, the other thing that's important is that it's not just, you know, the experts and the enthusiasts at Hakai and in the government agencies and universities that can contribute to understanding this. Citizen science is hugely important. And I would kind of identify there's a couple of areas. Um, I think, Manda, we talked about, you may have somebody on to talk about iNaturalist. That's a great program that people can, can help to document biodiversity just as, as, as citizens, and they make significant contributions to science. The other thing we're really interested in in developing over the next 10 years are what we call sentinel sites, and particularly within the uh, within the Salish Sea. So having community partners who are capable of, of, of doing their bit to help us with data collection uh, and, and sampling and to be, if you like, kind of like our, if we're the army, they're the militia. And, uh, you know, they're serious, they're helping us, they can do significant work. So we're very, very interested in recruiting community organizations, partners, whether they be First Nations, clubs, um, enthusiasts, to, uh, to, build a, to build a bigger, uh, to, build, to build a bigger group. They're doing significant science, and it's a hugely important part of things. So we're very interested in fostering that. And I know Amanda and I have talked about how we can help to do that. And we've got so many enthusiastic and, and and like-minded individuals, particularly who live around the Discovery Islands. I, I'm going to take a second to say you are listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM. We are really lucky to have our neighbor Eric Peterson from Quadra Island joining us to talk about the Tula Institute at the Tula Foundation and the Hakai Institute, amongst many, many other um, pieces of science. Eric, um, do you, do you need a break or can I'm afraid to let you go um, to have a small break because of our phone challenges? I'm wondering if you feel like you have it in you to do uh, another 20 minutes or so um, uh, without a break or whether you'd like to, to risk a break. I'm I'm up for it. I'm up for okay. it. Don't oh, worry, I, I like it. You're you're into the deep time of this radio show. <laughs> well, um, okay. So we have a lot of things that I still want to cover, and I want to um, uh, go. I wanted because you just brought up some of the citizen science stuff and the opportunities to be working more with um, small communities and um, you know and. And citizen science is, I mean, I just love the idea of citizen science because I believe it respects this idea of the, of the, of the deep observer, of the person who is really d- living in a place like, you know, islanders and, and paying attention to what they're seeing. So um, can you talk a little bit about um, some of the uh, ways that people can kind of start preparing themselves to be one of these partners um, and uh, and what you know who like who do you have to be to be a partner in this do you have to be a scientist um, and have a scientific background do you do we need to be starting to raise money for particular tools on our island tell us a little bit more how we can prepare to partner well Problem. If, if, if there is a, a website that you can take the link, so our, our, our Sentinel project is probably the, uh, well, iNaturalist, certainly. And, and you know, if, if, if subsequently you have Kelly back to talk about iNaturalist, I'll leave it to her. She can, uh, she's already had uh, people engaged 
on Cortez and in areas in that. So that's a, that's a huge opportunity. So iNaturalist, definitely, we think that's fantastic. The Sentinel site says, again, are we, we're trying to get partners around the Salish Sea who are willing to do uh, kind of sampling on a regular basis to help, uh, to, you know, to help us out. We already have a group uh, of partners who are sampling eDNA at, at, at different locations. So uh, the way that they, groups can get involved in, in that project is to get in touch with, with um, Heather and, and Matt, who are the two uh, Hakai people who are running that project. So I don't have the coordinates here, but certainly that's an obvious place to get involved in. What do you need to do to be a Sentinel site? Well, we're particularly interested in schools are great. So, um, you know, we're really hoping that, you know, we can get some participation from some of the schools that are close to the ocean. Now, I can't remember whether it's Saturna Island or Pender Island, which I think is already established as one of our Sentinel sites. Uh, we'd be really interested in, uh, you know, schools on Cortez, schools on Quadra, etc. So. We've got a real commitment to education. So that kind of goes without saying. I mean, I've been a teacher. Christina was a teacher. It was her profession. So we're very much, uh, you know, attuned to teaching, certainly at the university level, but all the way down the, the high school level and the school levels. And we've had an active program of working with schools on the central coast of British Columbia in science. So schools, 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 very interested in them as partners. Other organizations, I think we've got the, um, what is it, the Shaw Center, in Sydney, uh, on uh, down uh, by Victoria there, which is kind of a an ocean uh, exploration literacy place where, and so they can they can be a sentinel site. Um, we're we're interested in recruiting. Uh, you know, if First Nations are interested in being sentinel sites. That would be fantastic. If there are community groups, naturalist groups, people who are. So I mean, what it requires is a little bit of commitment of time. So if you're going to sign on and be one of our sentinel sites, you're going to commit to go out and sample for particular times, collect data, pass it on to us. We've got what's called um, uh, light traps as kind of a, a focus of that, and we're particularly interested in, because uh, we've got to be focused on a few things. Dungeness crabs is something we're really interested in understanding around the Salish Sea. So very important. Uh, everybody loves Dungeness crabs eating, at least most people do, and they're important culturally and they're important uh, ecologically and everything else. So. There's a number of sort of projects in addition to just doing general biodiversity sampling, specifically focusing on particular species, and we kind of give you the tools and the gear to, uh, to, to, to get out there and sample. So we're very interested in establishing, we'd like to have maybe 15 or 20 sites around the Salish Sea. I think we've got a handful now, but we're definitely interested in that, and that's a huge possible candidate opportunity. We'd love to have something on Cortez Island. Well, we we would love to to do it. I I am sure. So uh, we'll figure out a way to make that happen. Um, let I want to talk a little bit about. Um, you mentioned earlier about the the sea um, temperature increases that happened a number of years ago, and then we all experienced uh, this year on Cortez um, the heat dome and and you know any of us who live close to the ocean. It was hard not to um, observe <laughs> and and 
in, in my case, was deeply troubled by the massive, massive die-offs um, that happened uh, in the intertidal species. And so I'm wondering if we a little bit, if you can tell us what we know about um, the biodiversity of the Salish Sea and how it's changed over recent centuries and what we know about this moment in time and can predict about how things are going to um, speed up or intensify uh, with the environmental changes that we're already experiencing? You know, I would say the short answer is amazing how little seems to be known. And, and you know, you, there, there are, are some records and there are some information, but there are tremendous numbers of gaps. And, you know, some of that knowledge, um, you know, we, we, we're, we, can, we can work out maybe some ways of, of looking historically to kind of infer what happened in the past. Obviously, if we're trying to understand the future, which we are, and trying to predict the future, we really need to understand the present, and it really does help to understand the recent past. So quite apart from, you know, understanding what the Salish Sea looked like 20,000 years ago, which is of interest, I'd be very interested in what the Salish Sea looked like 200 years ago. Uh, you know, how has, has human settlement, industrialization, the, the kind of the human factors, how has that changed the, uh, the, the, uh, the biodiversity of the Salish Sea? I don't know that those questions are, are, are known, and, and I would love to use some of the techniques we have looking back in time to kind of piece together that story. And some of it can be done by modeling, some of it can be done by observation. I think there's a tremendous amount to learn, and it's, 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 I was amazed. For example, when we worked on Calvert Island and we were looking at the archaeology and the um, the physics of the earth around Calvert Island, you know, I was kind of surprised to find that nothing was known. But I was thinking to myself, that's some godforsaken place up there in the middle of the central coast. Who cares about that? I assumed that everything was known around Quadra Island and, and, and uh, that because, of course, it's near civilization. We found out nothing is known. So that, you know, it's amazing how little is known, even in areas that you think would be relatively well known. You know, I mean, Department of Fisheries and Oceans have been doing their surveys and people have been doing that. But it's complex. The ocean and, and life in it is incredibly complex, and understanding all the dynamics and how they're changing, very, very difficult. And so, um, you know, the more that we can understand, the better, but it's amazing how little we understand and how much there is to learn. So in some ways that's uh, depressing, but in some ways that's very exciting. If you're, a, if you're a young scientist or somebody who's interested in getting it, there's a tremendous number of discoveries there to be made and things to be understood, all hugely important work for everybody. And uh, I know you guys have, you just mentioned Dungeness Crabs, but I know you've also been doing um, things with clam gardens. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what is a clam garden and what is the recent history around clams? Yeah, well, that's, well, one thing we are, uh, we're very interested in shellfish. Well, why is that? You know, well, we, we don't need to be told. It's very important economically around us, oysters mussels, scallops, etc. So it, it's an important industry in the, in the north end of, uh, of the Salish Sea. So, and I tend to think of benign industry as something I'm happy to, see, uh, happy to see go ahead. So, yes, we're very interested in shellfish. We're very interested, as I said, ocean acidification particularly affects shellfish <laughs> and particularly affects oysters and, and, and anything that's got a calcium carbonate shell. Uh, and uh, what, what happens is that as the ocean becomes more acidic, it becomes more and more difficult for shellfish to maintain their, their shells. 
so that is uh, that's uh, you know that is a uh, a hugely a hugely important area. And what was the question you asked me? Sorry, my mind, <laughs> uh, my mind wandered. No, no, you, you're doing great, but uh, I was yeah. specifically wondering more about clam gardens. Yeah, 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 clam gardens. Okay, great. So it, it turns out that uh, clams, of course, they're not just important to us. They've been important for people for a long, long period of time. The really interesting thing about clams is it's winter food. I think everybody's been told by their mother, don't eat clams, you know, eat clams in the, mo- in the months that have got R's in them. Well, guess what? Those are all the winter months. So winter food is incredibly important for human survival. So that, you know, clams, uh, it's one thing to have salmon, that's great, it's one thing to have this and that, but you know, clams and shellfish, those are the kinds of things that, have, that sustain life now. And historically for people living around the, the Discovery Islands, clams, shellfish have been incredibly important. Now, uh, as I said, the First Nations, I mentioned that, they weren't just uh, hunters and gatherers out there collecting clams, they actually work very hard to cultivate uh, to cultivate clams to improve yields. And so a lot of that was clam gardens. And so I think probably many of your listeners may be familiar with all around the Discovery Islands. We have evidence from uh, hundreds and thousands of years ago of uh, First Nations people having built uh, clam gardens. And what they are effectively are, it's just like terracing. So they terrace the beaches by building rock walls. So you end up with a lot of flat areas that are more uh, conducive for clams. And I think as, as has been shown, that kind of thing really does increase the yield of clam gardens. We've done, there's been reconstructed clam gardens within uh, the Gulf Islands Reserve in the Strait of Georgia, uh, showing, uh, showing what sound uh, practices those are. So once they start, they, and for the long time, nobody had really noticed clam gardens. They were well known in the oral history of First Nations, but people hadn't really noticed them until they really started to look how many clam gardens there were and huge numbers of clam gardens around, uh, around Quadra Island. So that, beca- that has become really an amazingly interesting and important story to, uh, to document clam gardens how, uh, where they are, where they were used, and, 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 and everything else. So it's become an extremely important area of, of archaeology. tends to be recent archaeology. We don't have 18,000-year-old clam gardens, but we've got so, I mean, they're, 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 they're ancient, uh, they're prior, you know, old uh, and, and established traditional things, but very, very important stuff, and, and they fit in extremely well with the, uh, with the archaeological story around the Salish Sea. Well, speaking of um, species that we all want to talk about, have you guys done any uh, research around sea stars and um, know anything about what has you know what has caused the die off, how they're doing, how the returns going, etc.? Well, um, one of our employees, uh, Alyssa Gaiman, who and one of our important. University partners at University of British Columbia, Chris Harley, are probably you know world-class experts in sea stars. So we were uh, Chris and and us at, at, at Hakai right from the start of the outbreak, which was I can was 2013 or something like that. We started to see uh, sea star wasting disease across the coast. We've been on top of that, monitoring, looking at it in detail. Now initially, it looked as though. Um, the north, our central and north coast of British Columbia had kind of had kind of escaped that star, uh, that sea star epidemic, the you know disease that was killing all the sea stars, 
And it looked as though some, we, were, we were not going to get hit with it on the Central Coast, whereas, you know, all across the California coast and Oregon, I mean, just sea stars, almost all of them being, being wiped out by this disease. But then it's interesting, the interaction of things. When we had the, the uh, marine heat wave, when the ocean heated up, uh, that was correlated with then sea star disease uh, started to hit us on the central coast. Now, whether or not the disease came with the warm water or whether that was just an added stressor that made uh, that, that sort of tipped them over the edge, then we, then we had the epidemic that, that hit us on the central coast as well. So we've lost our sea stars there. We do very, very detailed um, uh, studies and, and um uh, surveying, keeping track of them. It's not just one species of sea stars. I can't remember how many there are. There's a, a huge number of them. One of the most important ones, as your listeners may know, uh, the sun star, which is one that's got like 20 arms or 25 arms or something like that. Uh, the generic name is Pycnopodia. So it's a great big starfish and a hugely important uh, predator. Uh, it's a, it, you know, you don't, you think of, you don't necessarily think of starfish as predators, but they move around and they, they are significant predators. So, um, you know, Pycnopodia was extremely important. So we've been, that has been one of the really important things that we've been studying. We're working very closely with uh, partners up and down the coast, and particularly the Nature Conservancy of California, who's, uh, you know, desperate to somehow or other restore, uh, restore sea stars to their area. So, um, but one thing we found recently is that there are pockets of, of uh, and, and places like Knights Inlet, Burke Channel, um, and uh, areas of the inlets where, um, if you like, the holdouts are still there. The, the, star, the sea stars are healthy up in those areas, so the, the, the epidemic hasn't hit them there. So to some extent, they're, uh, they're, they're, it's kind of a hopeful sign that the populations may reestablish themselves from these, uh, you know, refuges where the starfish have been able to, the sea stars have been able to escape the disease. And they're also interested in potentially using those populations for breeding and reestablishing sea stars across the coast. So that, uh, uh, it's a, uh, I, you know, and so many things that are interesting. I didn't even think about that, but that is, a, that's a, a hugely important area. One thing that's very interesting interaction, the other thing I haven't mentioned that, of course, is extremely important to us are kelp and seagrass and seaweeds. And we're probably, people are probably aware of the fact that, you know, kelp is like the forest of the ocean. Uh, and uh, we've had real problems with uh, losing kelps, uh, particularly down the coast of uh, the southern coast, Oregon and California, but all the way up through the, the Salish Sea, even on, even on the central coast. Losing kelp. Part of, those has, part of that has been climate change, making it unfavorable for, uh, for, for many of these species. But one thing that's hugely important are sea urchins. And, you know, sea urchins may be pretty little things, but they're just like the cockroaches of the ocean. When they proliferate, they just eat uh, their herbivores, so they eat kelps. And, and uh, so that we've got a huge explosion of uh, urchins eating kelp. And part of the reason for that is the things that normally eat those urchins, sea otters, had you know we're, we're we're disappearing although coming back, but Pycnopodia, that big predatory starfish that I a sea star that I was talking about that's gone, that's the normal predator that eats a huge amount of urchins, and so you know by losing these uh, by you know you lose one thing in the in the environment and it's got this this avalanche effect that you know you lose your predators you got a proliferation of sea urchins 
Then you start losing your kelp, you're losing your habitat. So these things are very, very delicate balanced, and you do need to understand all the factors to figure out what's going on. I, uh, one of my very good friends is a uh, kelp uh, researcher. That's her specialty. So um, I really appreciate you bringing up kelp and it feels a little bit like one of those things that we we do forget to talk about i mean there's been a lot of attention these days on sea stars and um and you know clams and oysters and the things that uh i don't know yeah i don't know why those somehow have, have have caught our attention when kelp um hasn't so thank you for um for bringing that up, so let's go from the the hyper local um, to the global a little bit more, um, and I, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about the United Nations declaring a decade of ocean science. What is that? What does that mean for for you and us? Have I lost you? Or still there? Oh, uh, I can hear you. Can you still okay. hear me? No. Yeah, no, I can hear you. Okay. No, I can definitely answer that question. So, um, as I say, um, our real motto is local, local, local. Uh, we really want to uh, take the time to understand our local environments in great detail, which we do and we're continuing to do. So we're, we're still absolutely committed to that long-term ecological research at these specific sites and, and understanding long-term. Now, as you grow in sophistication, Scientifically, you start saying, hmm, it isn't all about that. There are other organizations elsewhere that are doing similar things. So um, we end up forming uh, alliances and relationships across our coast and around the world with other organizations and other, uh, and other projects where they are looking in detail at, at their locations with the same level of precision that we're looking at our sites. So compare and contrast and starting to understand the bigger picture based upon uh, the collaboration between all of these sites that are committed to local, local study. Now, we've had two ways, and, and, and as I always as I, I tell people ad nauseum within Quadra, we want to expand our partnerships nationally. We want to expand them regionally across the west coast of uh, North America, and we want to understand them uh, and we want to expand them globally. There's a few things that we've been very successful in doing that. So across Canada, we are partnered in what's called the Canadian Integrated Ocean Observing System, where we have, uh, you know, uh, partners on the east coast of Canada in, in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland and Prince Edward Island, and also in Quebec, who are uh, doing similar things on their coast. So we're part of a national, uh, we're, we're part of a national organization there in which. Department of Fisheries and Oceans is a huge partner. We also have a very strong, important local partner in Ocean Networks Canada, uh, based in Victoria. So that's a national thing. Across the coast, we've got all of these connections and through with, with our American counterparts up and down the coast, other ocean observing systems. So that's great. But as Amanda said, one thing that's been really interesting in um, the, last, uh, uh, the last year is the United Nations has declared... Um, starting in 2021 through to 2030, this to be the, the decade of ocean science and uh, to kind of encourage organizations like us to join forces globally to uh, concentrate ocean observation and all of this kind of integrated uh, study of the ocean and to, uh, and to um, 
get together on this. Now, from my point of view, that came at exactly a time when I wanted to expand our reach globally and internationally. And so we just kind of caught that. Um, and we've, we've ended up now, it's amazing. So we are very much integrated with the, uh, with the, uh, with the United Nations approach. I'm having to wake up at 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the morning to participate in Zoom calls from Paris. And, uh, and so we've really um, suddenly... We are not only a small local organization, we've got these uh, incredible partnerships around the world. Now, as Amanda said, I mean, why, you know, when people, can, people around the world see what we're doing in British Columbia, they're not saying, well, you know, that's nothing. They're saying, wow, that's incredible. We want you to be part of our club. We want you to participate. So it's been very easy for us to join in these national and international collaborations. Now, of course, those are really interesting. So, we're, as I say, we're not giving up on our loyalty to long-term ecological research, and we're not giving up on our local sites. We're enriching those in terms of partnerships and relationships with, uh, with partners all around the world. So that's been very exciting, and it's kind of raising our profile. And all of a sudden, we seem to have become uh, kind of a hot commodity. People want to work with us. People want to collaborate with us. And, you know, it's almost every day we're having opportunities for new partnerships. So we're very much interested in doing that and using that as a way to kind of broaden the enthusiasm for science, for ocean science and projects which are happening within the Salish Sea and around. So to uh, both the Salish Sea, we're very interested in, in even what we call the urban seas, you know, the ocean around uh, Vancouver, around Victoria, around Campbell River, uh, you know, that's the ocean too, even though it's not the, you know, pristine natural world of uh, of, of somewhere up on the central coast of British Columbia. That's important. Places like False Creek are important. Burrard Inlet, Victoria Harbor. We can, if we can make to make those areas healthier, that's really important. And those are areas where citizens can have much more of an impact because that's the ocean that's right near where they live. And one of the um, things that I believe was uh, part of one of the themes from the UN, I believe, was this idea of a cultural heritage management. Um, and I believe this is actually one of the things that Hakai and BC, uh, and you know, in general, um, uh, is quite. Um, maybe I should say that where we're doing a better job than maybe perhaps much of the rest of the world. Can you talk a little bit about what cultural yeah. heritage management means and what you are doing around it? Yeah, I mean, the, I would say that when, uh, so it's called the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. So you can kind of parse that apart. So if we say the United Nations um, Decade of Ocean Science, what is ocean science? What I really liked about the UN formulation was it's very much ours, and I think I mentioned at the start. So it's not just natural science, it's social science, it's traditional knowledge, and there's a huge emphasis on um, the knowledge and rights and, and, and our responsibilities to uh, indigenous, um, indigenous communities around the world. And again, we've got indigenous communities on our coast, obviously, but there are indigenous communities around Africa, there are some communities... Uh, all the way through Asia, Central America, everything else. So that is a hugely important area. So that uh, uh, a huge emphasis on um, indigenous people, traditional knowledge, and then also on this historical uh, her on heritage. So exactly the kind of deep time uh, resources uh, are, are something that is 
identified as a priority of, of the decade of ocean science. And that means identifying cultural and uh, cultural resources um, that are around the ocean, uh, making sure they're identified, making sure that they're respected, making sure that they're preserved. So that's an important piece. And one thing that is incredibly important is with sea level rising, as I say, so many of these coastal resources are either beneath the waves now or threatened by, by um, sea level rise uh, to being destroyed. So being particularly diligent about identifying and preserving coastal heritage sites is a one of the one. There's 30 major uh, programs within the within the ocean decade. So one of the uh, one of the uh, main programs is cultural heritage preservation. We've identified that as something that we already do, um, even though we we can sometimes beat ourselves up for all of the neglect that we show. I think at Hackai and also in generally in British Columbia. Uh, we, we, there is an opportunity for us to, to do that work better um, uh, than um, and, and to be an exemplar for how this kind of work should be done around the world. Not to say we're perfect, not to say that we couldn't do way better, but in some ways we we're, it's, it's you know when other part when when organizations from other parts of the world look at the situation and the resources and the kinds of things and the opportunities that we have in British Columbia. I think there's an opportunity for us to lead in that area, and we're very anxious and eager uh, for all of the things. You can probably tell how enthusiastic I am about the area that we do at Hackeye. So that is something that we can do well. That's something that we can show leadership. If we, if we forge the right kinds of partnerships with community organizations and First Nations and everything else to do it properly. Uh, I appreciate your leadership in that uh, area very much. Can you um, give us another sort of general term, um, which is around what does it mean to be ocean literate? But I want you to tie it into your own vision. Like, What is your dream of success when it comes down to the individual person? And what would you hope that each person um, could realize uh, or know or live um, that expressed ocean literacy? I mean, obviously, you don't need to have a PhD to know a lot about the ocean. And there's plenty of people who don't have PhDs who know way more than people who do have PhDs about what the ocean is. So understanding the ocean is something that comes from experience. I think that we are, and particularly in British Columbia, we're, you know, we're ocean people, even if we live up the, the Fraser River, we're, we're ocean people. So it's something that's a naturally of interest. And, and I think it, you know, it's just in, inherently interesting. And there's so many different dimensions of the ocean that you can be, you know, people love the ocean for all sorts of different reasons. As a, and, and so there's, there's a tremendous amount to learn. You can learn from your own experience. There's great material. We, we take great pride at Hakai in, uh, you know, when, when I say the work that we do, I mean, it's not just scientific publications. It's not just research reports and journals that we produce. We re, I really like the work that the Hakai magazine does. And then also a lot of the kind of Hakai media, just more Hakai media that we do that to bring those, those, those stories of the ocean uh, to life. So that uh, the work that, that the formal work that scientists are doing and that others that work with them, if we can make that accessible via media, uh, whether it's social media, whether it's, um, you know, videos, et cetera, et cetera, that's tremendous because these stories are interesting and they're important, and you have to get them out in a form that people can people can can consume. Now, 
we're not we're by absolutely not the only vehicle uh, by which people can learn about the ocean. So there's a tremendous amount of knowledge, and and I think just people pay attention, learn, get out there with their kids, with the schools. I mean, there's there's just a, a, a you know to be uh, to be integrated with the ocean. I mean, I was fortunate to grow up on the ocean, and I was fortunate to grow up with uh, parents that. Uh, encouraged us kids to get out there and learn things and understand what's going on and learn the difference between these different kinds of clams and everything else. So, you know, if there's a, a great deal that you can do, and as I say, integrating, you know, technology with things like something like iNaturalist, so you go around with your cell phone and you can actually be doing science. And that's the kind of thing that I think it, it gives you opportunity to kind of broaden out uh, the, uh, the, the interest. And uh, so, I don't know. I mean, literacy is a very broad thing. I mean, it's, if you can, you 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 need to be, uh, you know, knowledgeable about the ocean, enthusiastic about the ocean, and just paying attention and and understanding how important it is to everybody's lives. I uh, before this uh, interview uh, started spending some time on the Hakai Magazine website, and it is so beautiful um, and uh, and informative. But I mean, really, just was striking um, to spend time on and to visit. I'm wondering uh, if you would also spend a second telling um, or, you know, tooting the re- touting the resources um, of the Tula Foundation, uh, including a book that um, people can buy if they would like to go deeper. Yeah, we, uh, we were, um, we ended up publishing a book that's written by um, a writer called Tai Bridge. The the title of the book is Heart of the Coast, and uh, it's actually available on Amazon. And um, I was noting to Amanda that not only is it available on Amazon, but thanks thanks to the uh, Look Inside feature on Amazon, you can actually read quite a few chapters of it without buying it. <laughs> but we would encourage people to buy it so that uh, Taiyi can make money off it. We don't make money off it, but he has an artist, and he has the author. Uh, makes money on it. So it's a wonderful book, and we, uh, we, give, it, we give it away to, uh, to all of our employees so when they come on board. So at least they can understand what the Hakai Institute was, and it probably went to press about 2018, so that there's been so much that's, uh, that I've talked about with Manda that's not going to be in the book, but certainly there's a huge amount of background that gives you a real idea of who we are and where we've, and where we've come from. So I would, I would definitely encourage people to... to uh, uh, to take a look at that. And we're trying to get it on the BC ferries, but right at the moment with uh, restrictions, there's not very much um, material that's on there. So it's a great book. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to give it a plug, Nada. Oh, it was my pleasure. Um, and maybe we'll uh, have the author come on one day and, and do some reading from it and talk a little bit more about that process. That would be wonderful. And actually, uh, he did such a good job. We hired him. So he's now a Hakai employee. Perfect. So, so I, I, I could talk to his boss about that. Uh, <laughs> um, and t- tell us, um, if people want to find out more um, about some of your other programs, uh, where would you send them? Well, I think the web, you know, we, we always apologize for our website. We try as quickly as we can to get up to speed. So there's Hakai.org. Which, uh, which is basically the, you know, the, the site for the Hakai Institute. I think there's HakaiMagazine.com, which is the uh, Hakai Magazine website, which is great. And then we also have Tula.org, which is, the, uh, you know, is a little bit more personal, uh, and that's the, the, uh, 
the the, uh, the, the Tula website, that it gives you links uh, to the other things we do, and particularly if anyone is interested in and we program we absolutely love, which is Tula Salute, or our, our Tula program in Guatemala, uh, which uh, you can get links to there, and you can find out what we do in Guatemala. So that is, uh, we do a whole bunch of stuff there that's in the area of public health, including being mostly responsible for the COVID-19 uh, response program in uh, the indigenous areas of Guatemala. So. That's very interesting stuff, and, and uh, so, uh, you know, that's a, that's a plug for that. So Tula.org, Hackeye.org, HackeyeMagazine.com. Thank you so much uh, for, for your work, for your vision, and for your time with us today, Eric. Um, I, I certainly learned more. I hope other people did too. And I feel like this is just going to be the beginning. Um, I've already been in touch with some of your scientists to get them to come on. I'm hoping to get uh, the author of The Heart of the Coast on um, and that this is just the beginning. That sounds fantastic. I've I've really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to talk. Well, it has been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much. Um, again, it feels great to be neighbors with uh, exciting, exciting people and organizations like the Tula Foundation and Hakai. Um, what an incredible, special place we get to call home. Great. All right. Goodbye until next time. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And thank you, neighbor, for joining us for another episode of Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM. I am putting together the uh, the spring calendar of Folk University, and I would love to hear from you as to who you'd like to hear more from, what you would like to hear more about, and how we can stay relevant and interesting for you Thank you again, neighbor. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out at the letter U at folku, F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. And similarly, if you have questions for our guests that don't get answered today, you can reach out through me and I will at that same email and I'll try to connect you. Uh, Until next time, be well, be neighborly, and be curious. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F O L K U.ca. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Radio.ca. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing.